I think pretty early on, I, I realized, you know, when I started looking at people and spending a lot of time asking them questions that uh, a lot of the you know, people that we glorify were running away from something as much as they were running towards something. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Tourist Information. I know it has been a while. I hope you're well. I am currently recovering from COVID, which I contracted a week and a half ago. Not the most pleasant experience, but um, I have somebody fun this week. Gary Smith, definitely one of my heroes in journalism. Basically is to sports journalism what Rembrandt is to painting. Just the greatest portraiture that we have. And he has won the National Magazine Award a record four times. Spent 32 years at Sports Illustrated and for the last several years has been working on a fictional book about Emily Dickinson and Walt Whitman. (laughs) It's just an extraordinary character. And, um, you know, his profile's on... Mike Tyson and Muhammad Ali and Tiger Woods and especially Roy Jones Jr., which was the blueprint for what I tried to follow up with 20 years after he wrote it, meeting all of those same characters. Uh, he's just really, really extraordinary presence in the annals of, of sports history. And um, what he's able to do with his work and... Um, What motivates and animates his work, I've just always found remarkably unusual and and special. Uh, The ego of writers, as I think Twitter has been revealing, is not the prettiest of things, and yet this guy really stands apart in his own way. And uh, so I was thrilled just to have a chance to catch up with him. He's somebody periodically that I've checked in with just to get some help with some things that I was working on, but I wanted to have a conversation with him face-to-face, I mean, insofar as Zoom is concerned. And uh, so I didn't know where this was going to go, and I hope you enjoy it uh, because he's amazing. He's amazing, and uh, I hope everybody's doing doing well. And uh, I'm going to do another interview on Friday with a very interesting lady, and uh, hopefully, hopefully, some more interviews coming coming down the pike. Working on some other stuff, but I do I do enjoy sharing these, and and I hope you like them. So this week, Gary Smith on tourist information. Talk to you guys soon. Okay. So here we go. Here we go. Well, it was just funny to see you pop up in the Sports Illustrated little piece. Um, I just wondered, you know, you seem to have kept a very low profile since you retired from Sports Illustrated, and it got such a positive response, um, not least of which to discover that you're teaching mindfulness to elementary school t- students. So I, I just wondered what it was like to... Um, reach out to the world again from your sort of former platform? Um, you know, I guess I really wasn't quite reaching out. Somebody was doing the reaching for me. So um, it was all good. You know, it's, uh, it's just, you know, a young man called Joey Ian Khan and uh, started asking questions. I just started answering him and, uh, you know, it all went, you know, went great. But um, 
but uh, you know, it's not like I've been evading any notice or seeking it. So, you know, somebody calls and asks questions, I'll gladly engage in a conversation with them. Well, it's kind of interesting though, Gary, because when I've talked to some people about you, they've made the point to me that you're difficult to reach and um, reticent to communicate, which is exactly the opposite of how I found you. Uh, we, we've communicated through email a few times and a couple times by phone, but I wonder why do you have that reputation when that's not at all what I've I've experienced? I don't know how that got started. I mean, it's, maybe people think you're difficult to reach because you're not on Twitter or something like that, or I don't know, you know, if that's how people like contact people nowadays. Hmm. Um, but you know, I've, I've never, uh, I mean, for a living, I called people and, and or reached out to them who emailed to, you know, out of the blue. And um, I never would have made a living if people had refused to respond to those. So I feel like, you know, almost beholden to be to, to, to respond in the same way that people responded to me all those years. Hmm. So since my uh, livelihood hinged on it um it would seem uh, unfair of me now you know to say oh i'm not going to you know to talk to somebody who wants to ask some questions i mean that's all the hell i ever did so uh <laughs> i've never you know never never evaded or <laughs> hidden or anything so it's, it's 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 unusual it's weird but it's just i maybe it's just because i'm not on any kind of social media that people make that supposition and that if you're not on so social media now, I guess you're some kind of recluse. I don't know how that how that works. Hmm. Well, it's funny you, you mentioned social media because one of the people in that in that piece that you were involved with by by Joseph Bean Khan, I think is the pronunciation of his name, um, S.L. Price, who's a friend of mine and was kind of a mentor to me when I started out. Um, I remember how bitterly he had to join Twitter and, and made the point that his editors were sort of essentially forcing him to get on Twitter. And I'm trying to imagine if you were starting out in sports writing today and you received that kind of mandate from editors, you seem like the last person on earth who would want to participate in social media. How, how you would, or, or do you ever think about how you would grapple with your career beginning now, if you were 20, with what would sort of be required in sports journalism the way it is? Uh, you know, I have to entertain the possibility that if I were 20 now, that I would have a different relationship with it than I have, you know, at the age I am. But if I had the mind that I had now, at the end, and we're entering at 20, it would be a real problem. Mm. <laughs> I mean, I just, I, I don't know what I would have done if I would have just gone in a different direction, if that was mandatory, um, or if I would have hired someone to do it for me. I, I don't know what the possibilities are. Um, I just, um, it just would, would not feel natural to me and I would resist. I mean, even when um, SI kind of shifted to some kind of smartphones, I think they were Blackberries back in the day. They sent me one and I sent it back, I think twice or something like that. I just, you know, didn't want to ever go beyond a, a flip phone that was the most I wanted to go without any of that and um, I just you know it, it would be a real problem and I don't know it would be a there'd be real conflict over that for me hmm do you for you um, 
I mean, just the idea of you teaching mindfulness to kids when a lot of data seems to suggest that a phone is more addictive, a smartphone is more addictive than heroin for kids as their brains are developing. Um, I just wonder what your view of that is. I mean, one of the things that S.L. Price told me is that it has revealed aspects of journalists that are very unflattering, that we just can't stop seeking attention, that we can't stop talking, um, the pettiness, the vanity, all of these things. Uh, you, you've always struck me over the years of reading you as just so unlike the general ilk of sports writers that I've come across. Um, even your departure from the industry seems very unusual for sports writers, and it was touched upon in that piece, Catching Up With You. Um, I, I just wonder, like, what, what do you make of, of the reduction of attention span? Like, Your kind of work seems to really want to get absorbed into the character, and we get absorbed through you, which seems very antithetical to where social media is, Twitter... Instagram, that kind of thing of, of constantly, I, at July 4th here in New York, I saw people taking photographs over their back of the fireworks without looking at the fireworks and then leaving. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you know, obviously the thing is mesmerizing, captivating. I mean, I watch, you know, a 10-month-old grandchild, you know, just lunging for the thing. And so you just know how, you know, how fundamental this is for the human brain to, to want that thing and to be drawn to it. But, it, you know, it calls for reactivity and reactive. And when we're in reaction, it's not our it's not our better side. It's not our, mm. you know, it's we all know this. We have these energies. Every human being, they've they've we've had these flinches and these quick responses to things, reactions, and, you know, I would just rather uh, not live in that world of reactivity that, uh, you know, when you have a response to something, that's a much different animal than a, than a reaction. And um, we all need to give ourselves time to have the reaction, notice what it is, and then really let it settle and sift into some kind of perspective with the larger picture before we live out of it. So, something that just kind of begs us to live out of that is just, I just don't find it wise, but, um, um, I, you know, I get it and I get why so many report, younger writers and reporters feel like they have to, you know, to survive. So I, you know, I feel for that. Right. Um, I was thinking about with your portraiture of, of so many different characters. I, it, it occurred to me that, the History Channel I saw watching some YouTube stuff that kept advertising that we're going to distill Rome to just the Colosseum. And, and I love that because at the, the peak of decadence in Rome, they went from two times a year having events at the Colosseum to over half the year was continual events at the Colosseum. And I, I wondered for you, you mentioned the article you're quoted as saying that you're, you're not just profiling the people, but America by extension through these people that have so much of our collective attention. Um, so I, I wondered, what, it, what do you see about America from the characters that you have portrayed with such depth and, and complexity and nuance? What, what, when you kind of look back at the body of work, what does it say about the country in which you're from and live in? 
strange country. I mean, it's uh, a <laughs> when you were swallowed by it, it's hard to you know get outside of it enough to see it. But it's um, I mean, I think one of the first things we have to understand is who we are and what our gene pool is. We're a country of leavers. I mean, virtually all of our great great grandparents or little past that or even or could be more recent than that left left their families left everything they knew left their their food their songs their traditions um their parents their sisters brothers um and came somewhere to start over so that's a large wager and it's you know it's also a turning away from a lot of things in your in yourself and killing a lot of parts of yourself and you know i think over time there, there's so many wonderful things about that start you know the startup um the energy that goes with that but there's also a lot of pain that gets kind of shoved down and all the way down into your your genes i think in your dna and um so we inherit this without even knowing it and live out of it, many of us. And it's, um, at times it's toxic. I mean, it's also incredible. It's, it's you know, it's, so it's a whole mixed bag of uh, it just, you know, the, the Bunsen burners turned up here more than most countries uh, who have settled into something and, and and stayed with it you know lived in it for better or worse sometimes it's just misery to stay in what a lot of cultures have stayed in and just keep repeating over and over but um ours i, th I think we see the without realizing it we're, we're seeing the results again and again of a, of a people who've who it's so unconsciously deep and in, in, in buried in them and, and again maybe sometimes just genetic almost more than how their parents specifically conditioned them but it's you know a tribe that's just a, a mix of people who all left hmm. uh you, you know i think we know in our own little circles you know the people who just slam the door and walk away um there's a lot going on in those people and a lot we, you have to, you know, account for in those people. And so you, and you put that in a large scale, um, I think that that's a lot of what we're looking at now. I, I got, I picked up your book to reread a number of your stories and I was thinking about something to do with Rembrandt because it does seem to me that you kind of occupy this role of sports journalism's Rembrandt in, in so many respects. Um, but I also thought it's really interesting with Rembrandt that you have businessmen for the first time trying to occupy the role of military leaders through their clothing and their depiction. They're trying to occupy the most important status through the portraiture of what Rembrandt was hired to do. And yet now we don't know any of their names. The wealthiest people in the world at that time residing in Amsterdam, we have no idea who they were beyond that Rembrandt rendered them. And I wonder what that feeling is like for you, um, having that responsibility with these people where the most popular people in the country basically are athletes, which is strange. It's strange that we've commodified leisure and value it to that degree, 
But I just wonder what it's like for you to, to pull back the curtain in a way that has garnered you more accolades than any other sports journalist um, to reveal these people that are so venerated and and holding our are so captivating to this public for, for the variety of reasons that they, they do hold our attention. Um. I think with each one of them, I was just approaching them as a human being first and foremost. And, um, you know, just the fame or celebrity just added one more layer of complexity to what how they had to cope with the world and seeing it that way. And um, and so, you know, I wouldn't get caught up in, in that, but I but I understood it to be an, another dynamic in the whole thing if they had if there was fame at play. But um so yeah, my whole thing was just always just about trying to understand them, who they were, what they were up against, and um, why they'd landed where they'd landed. Like you know, I just seeing people are usually just they're they're a bundle of of coping. You know, it's an aggregate of different ways to cope with circumstance what you were born into, you know, with your, just the body you're given, the parents you're given, the family, the situation, the wealth or lack thereof, just this whole, this whole series of things. And so we come up with these ways to deal and, you know, it's, it's sometimes heartbreaking, but it, but necessary how human beings have to, the stances they have to choose. Um, so just understanding those feeling for them, you know, and trying to render that, um, I think was what, what I was primarily trying to do. And, um, and, you know, the glory part of it or whatever was just kind of another one of many pieces of that were at play. Um, so I don't know if I answered your question, but no, you, you did. And, and I also wonder, like, you know, with a Tiger Woods, you're, you're getting him early on and forecasting where you think he's going to end up that seemed very prophetic. Or Mike Tyson, where he's one of the most famous faces on earth. Um, it strikes me, I was listening to a psychiatrist from Yale talking about uh, dopamine and base levels and that sort of thing. And I was thinking, are we, a lot, like, especially in the arena of sports, um, can anybody get to the top who isn't sociopathic and monomaniacally obsessed with what they're doing to a degree that makes them kind of a horrible human being in, in a lot of respects because there's no way not to, to exist that way, to be that driven. I'm thinking of Michael Jordan at the Hall of Fame speech where all it is is grievance, despite you'd think the last person who would have a grievance based on how successful they've been would be him, yet he seems more miserable than anybody I've ever met. It, it doesn't compute with our popular understanding. So I wonder if you could speak a little bit to that when you're up close to these people of, um, I'm thinking like I met Lance Armstrong briefly and ghost wrote for him. He was the most hateful person I've ever met in my life. Very charming, very uh -huh. interesting, but I, I've never seen somebody who thrived on grievance more than him. Yeah, I mean, it becomes a fuel for a lot of a lot of, of these pe people, and it just um, they can't give it up because it, it it's what the, it's what takes creates their success, and they either consciously but maybe more likely subconsciously 
get that. And, and, and so they just repeat it and create it over and over and over again. And I think pretty early on, I, I realized, you know, when I started looking at people and spending a lot of time asking them questions that uh, a lot of the you know, people that we glorify were running away from something as much as they were running towards something. It was almost proportionally equivalent there, that, that ratio. And so that a lot of the, you know, insight would come from asking questions that went toward, started, you started looking and poking around in what they were moving away from and asking about that. And that there was a lot of gold there and it, you know, it, it stripped away the glory, some of, of what they achieved when you kind of look at it from that lens, but it also stripped away the judgment and too, because you, you could then understand. And so then it became almost a, I think readers could identify in some ways because there were universals at play there that were at play in their lives. And so um, um, that looking at what, what you're running away from, what, why do you need to control this one arena so in such, in such an extreme way, so radically that is it because there's this, a vast or other world where you feel none of that control. And so that kind of uh, shifting the eyes from there to here was where you would kind of, it ended up in, again, in both ways where you, you took away some of the, the, the glory of their achievement, um, but you also humanized them and um, made them relatable because we're all, there's the things that all of us feel very uncomfortable about and we move away from well and, and i wanted to you know you mentioned fame and that's a really because i like that your career over 30 years charts how fame has evolved or devolved as the case may be and it, it made me think a little bit as i was going through these profiles that cover these decades a bit how norman rockwell was depicting america by showing everyday life by finding everyday people and that stopped when Andy Warhol said, no, now we're going to move to Jackie Kennedy. Jackie Kennedy is going to grieve her husband for all of us. And Marilyn is going to represent all of us. We can't all have Marilyn, but we can have our own color of Marilyn. So we get a different, you can have gold and I'll have pink and all of that kind of thing. And it will speak to not just who she is, but our longing, our collective longing for her. And there's something about his... Uh, philosophical exploration of fame that is so chilling but seems so human and accurate and and I just wonder how fame has evolved as you were up close to some of the most famous people in this country and how you view fame as a, a component to what they're up against well it's obviously it's a distorter in, in a large way and it it just it, it again, it turns up the Bunsen burner on just a lot of things that were already sitting there in, in human in a human being. Huh. Um, I mean, I, and I, I would I feel for somebody who has to deal with it. I mean, it just you know just how that would warp your life, and it because of this screen and, and technology, it's just you know as you referenced, multiplied it over these last 30, 40, 40 years. Um, so dramatically and it just you'd have to really be a unique human being to find a relationship with it it would be sane especially you know when it's happening when you're 
18, 19, 20, 21, where almost no human being is equipped to deal with even the regular stuff life throws at you, let alone that. So, um, I mean, it, it, I would really, you know, it's almost like you either have to have been touched by tragedy in your early years to develop that uh, this healthy maybe perspective on it or, you know, raised by parents who took you to, I don't know where you could go now to, uh, to um, find a human life if, if you were like a prodigy. Right. Um, but it, it, short of some really unique circumstances that the thing's going to start swallowing you and you're just going to fall into the reactivity with it. Um, and it's not going to be healthy, most likely. It's gonna, you're going to have to go on a real journey just to figure out that part of your life, let alone all the other pieces that every one of us has to figure out. I wonder for, for you as well, I mean, as your career is ascending, um, it reminded me like a, a certain parallel to J.D. Salinger. You immediately turn down more money in order to work, not less, but differently than most people typically do to do sort of famously four, four pieces a year. Um, to have more time with them and more time with the people that, that you're uh, rendering. Um, I remember Matthew Salinger was interviewed fairly recently saying with his dad, you could track the culture by how they condemned the man by retreating from fame. That it became, he is private, he is reclusive, he is notoriously reclusive, he is secretive, and you could see how uncomfortable we were with somebody who didn't want to go on Oprah, who didn't want to receive awards. And so I wonder, you don't seem to have received any kind of backlash for your approach of just trying to find moderation or balance or what works best for you, contrary to the hyper-ambition of so many of your colleagues, and not just in sports journalism, but in America at large. I sometimes get telemarketers calling me saying, do you want more boxing clients? I say, no, I'm fine. And there's nowhere they can go with the script if you're content. <laughs> so, yeah, I, what did you, so what's your question? <laughs> so so my, my question is, wh what is it that allowed you to seem to have such clarity about the path that you've taken that seems very, it's always remarked upon as being unconventional. Um, that you don't seem hyper ambitious, you don't seem desperate to have people hear your voice. Um, even in the piece, this recent piece in Sports Illustrated, that there's a kind of ghost memoir of who you are within all the portraits that you've done, but um, you've turned down book deals. There's a lot of saying no to things that most people uh, certainly don't seem equipped to say no to. I, I just wonder where that comes from or, or how you would regard this kind of, not insouciance, but uh, your individuality seems unusual. Um, I mean, I don't, for me, it's, it's like, I like to pursue the thread of creativity and whether it's, it, you know, it's like pulling a thread and you just learn so much about life and yourself if you just follow threads. And when I feel actively engaged in learning about something, there's an enlivening aspect to that. You feel alive. And doing something that's just, you know, talking about what you do. I mean, I, I'm again, I'm happy to talk about 
all this, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting stuff, but um, to do something like the book deals you mentioned, where I'd just be, what I like went on this journey and explored and learned something about something and kind of figured out the dynamics of it. Um, maybe not every dynamic, but it, enough. Um, then to like spend, after I'd spent months doing that, then to spend a, a year, two years writing a book, I just wouldn't be learning as much. And so that was why I didn't do that. Um, the aspects about anything that are just like, that aren't, don't have learning in, involved or growth of, of some kind are not as enlivening, just to me. And uh, for others, I'm sure there's there's a kick and a hit and a buzz and these other aspects that I don't, you know, get it from. And so they're going after life in their own way, which is fine. I, you know, I get no problem with that. So I just like, I kind of gauge wh whether I, it makes me feel alive and, you know, wanting to get up and go do something um, as to whether it's the right thing. And um, sometimes it could be, you know, it doesn't have to be anything large. It's just something that's just pulls is creative to me. And um, sometimes it's silly. It can be really silly stuff too. Hmm. Well, you remind me, I think Goya was in his eighties when he wrote famously, I'm still learning on the corner of one of his paintings. Um, Francis Bacon said it was about 50-50 with his portraits that he was in them. And I wonder for you, uh, how much of yourself do you see in your, in, in your portraits of people, of, of inserting yourself into them? Um, I'm sure it's quietly there, and probably in ways that I'm not even aware of. Um, you know, I didn't do much first-person stuff at all, um, but there's a tone that a narrative voice strikes that, you know, unwittingly often is conveying something about about yourself, I'm sure. Um, others could probably see it even better than I could again, but, um, but I, you know, I struck a lot of different types of narrative voices with different pieces, so there were probably different aspects of self coming up in those and not real overtly often I think but probably whispering stuff for sure so um, yeah I wouldn't deny that or you know but it wasn't ever a conscious effort you know it's, again as you said earlier it was trying to like absorb yourself and let the story is almost like submitting yourself to the story what's the best way to render this story and um, that would dictate almost everything. And a lot of times it dictated killing a lot of cleverness. You know, there is a natural inclination. I did come up through newspapers where you're writing, you know, 750, 800 word pieces where, where cleverness is almost the currency. To make an 800 word piece work for the most part, you almost requires cleverness. But once you're going from 800 to 8,000, it's almost like you had to start killing that cleverness. Um, and, you know, stepping back to, and just more and more surrender to story. And 
the character development because um, it works against you when, when you step to me in my mind when you step that one step too far forward in a long piece really starts to hurt the dynamic the internal kind of gunpowder that a piece can develop it's interesting too because i another aspect of your work that i admire so much is is there seems to be such a um a solid sense of self-awareness that you have like that wherever your ego is it doesn't intrude negatively into the portraits and i had gay talise on on this podcast and and interviewed him about some other things and i was struck by such an acute sensitivity to detail that he has in his work but was probably the most profoundly unself-aware person i've ever met in my life when i was engaging with him directly like we couldn't even talk all he wanted to do was psychoanalyze a, a girl I was dating for an hour and I never asked for any help with a horrible situation. <laughs> so this is so weird. Um, is that something that, that you consciously cultivated? I, I wanted to speak to the philosophy and psychology of your work, which everybody remarks upon how you're getting into the head and the heart and the soul almost on a metaphysical level with your characters. Um, is that something you developed or is, has that been Gary Smith from the get-go in terms of just how you read people? Um, I think some of both. I mean, I think I was, you know, as I grew up as fourth in a family of nine. And if you stuck your head up too high, you were going to get chopped down real fast. Huh. Uh, with humor, you know, more than anything probably. But, um, but um so that's a great leveler, um, very practical, modest, humble parents, you know, so that, that was in the, uh, in the DNA to, to a large degree, I think. Um, but also I think, you know, as part of my own exploration and learning in life, I just think I've, you know, came to realize itself was, was such an arbitrary way to, to for that to be the prism it's just, it's all manufactured. There's nothing there, you know, and it's um, for us to insist more and more and more on something being there that determines my attitudes on, X, you know, X, Y, Z. It's all, you know, this is all mine creating it. And so it just become, became, felt more and more preposterous to like in, insist or take those stances um, uh, and to live from that place. So it's been kind of a combination um, of both. I mean, you know, just going out in the world and interviewing so many people, the more you're quiet, but asking, you know, the right questions, the more you're going to receive. So it worked, you could, we could now look at it just from a practical standpoint, that it was a, a benef the benefit of that. Um, so I think it was kind of a, across the board, the, the career I went into, the way I approached it, what I was learning in my exploration and reading about us as creatures, um, my own meditative, you know, exploration, all kind of confirmed, you know, Pretty much, I guess, what the genetic uh, information was is, is one of nine. Like, you ain't such a hot shit, you know. <laughs> this, is all, <laughs> this is all just bullshit, you know, basically. This uh, this whole thing about me and my likes and my all that stuff, you know, and then making a 
cathedral to it. Well, it's just interesting because very often I feel like you you exist in a lot of your profiles, almost like wind through the leaves of, of the trees and the nearby. I'm so aware of the environment, but this little breeze that's blowing through feels like you in the story for me in a way that s certain filmmakers have that subtle touch where there's something present that feels natural but slightly metaphysical at the same time. It's a very interesting sensation because I find so many writers it's about control. You know, it's it's occupying that role of authority in the word author um, to to have that dynamic with the reader that yours is, it really allows the reader to come come to you and come to the material in a way that's, that's very unusual and seems very trusting of us as a, as a reader on some sure. level it's 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 very distinctive for, for me i know there's not a question in that but it's just a it's a dynamic that um i wondered what what you're reading and what what have you used to nurture for lack of a better word sharpen these instincts to to perfect some of your technique um you know my reading curve probably went from you know as just in high school to early college years like went from Steinbeck to Hemingway and that was learning about Hemingway is a lot about just that you know the compression um that's more writing stuff um but then it went like to Herman Hesse and that's when it kind of started to take this step into more of the internal psychology of a human being um and then it went from Hesse to, to Albert Camus and it just started going, you know, more and more into moving um, into, it started moving into philosophy really um, about and about man, mankind and in the individual man and us as a species. And um, so from there, you know, like when I was in my thirties, I, I, I met a, a a guy here where I live who became a great friend and we just started meeting each week and we would uh, we decided to start we start I found out that he like he really liked Nietzsche who I kind of carom from Camus to Nietzsche and um and so I said well we ought to just sit down and start pulling this stuff apart and so we just started once a week we were <clears throat> we'd pick a, a book and we'd just meet and start going through that book and it might take us Three months to get through a book um we'd highlight parts that really were thought provoking or we had questions about or that were interesting about how they um intersected with our own personal life so it wasn't like in the abstract this is about how it plays out in the world around us and inside of us and so we would you know just start going through this stuff his name is duke hagerty and uh so we we started with Nietzsche, but then we said, "Wait a minute, we're starting midway here. We got to go way back." And so we started pre-Socratic, and then just started following the the line all the way through, um, you know, to more modern, to, to more present day. So we've been doing this for uh, gosh, you know, thirty some years now, thirty five years or whatever. Um, so anyway, that's kind of where my reading and interests kind of flowed and then as a result of all that reading we started moving into some eastern reading and then we decided to we jumped into meditation started going to retreats so um that's a little bit of a general description of of the trail and in in, in involved and all that was years of traveling too of just 
moving for a year to Spain or a year in Paris, a year in uh, Australia, a year in Bolivia. Um, just, you know, that, that was also really helpful and just throwing yourself into different circumstances and figuring it out. So um, I would love to know what prompted you to, to choose Spain and what what you experienced there. Uh, just, um, it was, you know, I could use the excuse of the Olympics being there to uh, convince SI to let me go live in countries like like Australia before the Sydney Olympics and Spain before the Barcelona Olympics, hmm. um, that I could kind of absorb stuff about the culture and the cities and that it would be helpful in the in the uh, Olympic uh, story stories that they were going to do. So um, anyway, so it was too expensive to live in Barcelona. We had three little kids and jammed in the back of a, our car, you know, when we landed there. And uh, so we just drove around trying to figure out where the heck we'd live and uh, ended up in a little fishing village. It's become, you know, a little more than a fishing village, but a small town in the Basque country up on the North coast uh, between Bilbao and San Sebastian. And uh, just, you know, found an old, old plaza in a, and lived right on that and and uh had a hell of a year hitting the fiestas you know every every week almost it seems like some town is having a fiesta so we just jumped in this old baker's truck that we bought for a thousand bucks and uh and uh you know head to head to a fiesta and drink it all in so it was uh it was a great year did you do pamplona while you were up there yeah we tried a little because we'd already done it uh, before and had a great time, uh, my wife and I, and um, and so now this is now with kids though, and it was a whole different thing. We were kind of routed. Uh, we had you know we had the strollers and everything, and uh, we were there for a couple hours, and it's just too much madness to uh, to really pull off with the, you know a nine month old and, and a three year old and a five year old or whatever. So it was uh, we had to. Uh, beat a, a retreat uh, from that from that uh, second attempt at Pamplona. Uh, circled back a third time when they were older and could join the madness with us and uh, had a blast. Hmm. With you, with you, with traveling, you were mentioning with many of the people that you you've um, done done portraiture of um, that equal flight versus pursuit. Um, is that true for you also? How much have you been searching for stuff versus fleeing from mm -hmm. from stuff in your life? Yeah, and you know, and, and I hope I didn't make that sound too hard and fast of a of a rule. I think people can also glide into to um, aspects of life, you know, where they're really compelled and, and excel without it always being, you know, flight. A complete flight from something else but i'm sure there are quieter aspects of that going on it's just levels of degree perhaps but um um in some ways it felt to me like i was um if there was anything i was fleeing it was the white bread world of suburban america in some way hmm. you know i grew up in that and i think you know when i was young and hit showed up in europe for the first time as a young person just felt the difference of, you know, community and people 
getting together, having three-hour meals over wine and great food, and and then going out and spilling into fiestas in the streets together and things. There was a real enlivening part of that that drew me, and it was, you know, seemingly antithetical to life in subdivision America. Um, and so there was a real draw to that, to move, if you want to call that a flight, um, then and that would <laughs> that's what I'm aware of, at least. Well, no, it's funny because you mentioned Spain. One of the things that drew me to the town where, where we want to move is when I first went there and met a waiter um, just for the first meal in the town in the south, the bo- nearly the bottom of the country, 20 miles from the coast, um, was everybody who worked there was from there. And that was a very common theme in that town. And I asked the first guy, you never wanted to go to Madrid? You never wanted? And he said, "Have you You must be new because clearly you haven't seen my town or you would understand. Yeah. And as you're saying, it's so antithetical to sort of how we're programmed that tourism is the default position of us. We want to leave home to go to home and have all the conveniences to such a large degree. Uh, I, I can't help but think everywhere that Hemingway visited or wrote about uh, is the absolute worst place to go. Now, in terms to get a drink, it's the most expensive and it has the least interesting clientele, basically all over the world. And Anthony Bourdain, it's the same thing. He didn't want to mention the name of the restaurants that he liked the most because he knew what it would attract. And it's you can specifically avoiding naming the town that you're you were going to. That is true because uh, <laughs> there's not a lot of tourists there, and it's it's I not it. it's not on the ocean, so it doesn't have nine thousand English, um, you know, sun sunburned tourists who are going to Irish bars every every evening. So, uh, so I, I even with the Bourdain, I'm thinking with what you're describing with fight flight or fl- flight or pursuit. Um, it's really interesting that a suicide as high profile as his, um, that he's still viewed as searcher, pursuer, uh, the greatest tra- the greatest American tra- ambassador of travel that we had, and yet it seems very abundantly clear he was petrified of a home life. He was petrified of staying still. He was terrified to be in front of a, a TV camera all the time, but even more afraid to not be on a TV camera all the time. And we don't seem to reckon with some of that, like what's under the hood of, of mm-hmm. a person like that. And I I wonder if, because if, you don't seem that way at all. I get a sense that you had a great time in Spain and your travels, like it was enriching. Um, why do you think there are so many people that sort of not not that they get mislabeled, but it's like we want a very limited understanding of who they were in order to feel kind of reassured by them. Does that make sense? Yeah, we continue to whittle down the complexity of of life and of human beings. And it's, you know, it's just our craving for security and certainty. We want to pin things down, but there's so much more churning and going on in this world and in in specifically in in human beings but that's messy and it's confusing and when when it bubbles up even within our own selves we don't want to be confused by our own selves so we just limit you know we start sculpting it into something we can handle and it's yes and no's this or that's and that's where all the you know to me all the the uh 
the life gets squeezed out of it by that need for security. But this is what human brains do. We can't like resent ourselves for that. We just have to be aware of it. It's just mm. what we do, what the brain does to try to make take shortcuts and make sense of a perplexing set of circumstances that we're thrust into. And so, you know, it all, you know, is makes sense when you when you look at it from understand that part of it but it you know we have to be aware of our this craving for certainty and it's for survival purposes a lot of it if the brain can shortcut and, and get a quick fix and feel on what what's going on it can go in its whole set of responses and sometimes there's a life-saving responses but that also that same propensity is what limits us in our understanding of of human beings and life and it's 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 a shame but it's you know that's who we are i'm thinking about something that one of jd salinger's closest friends said uh, he said to one of his closest friends that after meditating in the morning first thing he would spend two to three hours just removing his masks before he could get started working on fiction (laughs) um i wonder what is your process with work? Like since you've left Sports Illustrated, 32 years there, you've been working now for nearly a decade on a work of fiction, I understand, about Walt Whitman and um, and who is the other poet who is in it? Emily Dickinson. Emily Dickinson, I'm sorry. I visited yeah. her home in Amherst too and I forgot her name. Um, yeah. What is it? What is, has there been any big shift in your process approaching that project, and and what have you gained from working on it? Um, that's a good question. What I've gained, um, uh, you know, a my process doesn't feel that much different, but um, it, and there's a lot going on there. Ten years, it hasn't been like I've been working on that alone for ten years. I've jumped off into a lot of side projects um that have you know taken up big chunks of time um but you know i spent just a couple years reading about them and learning about them um so that was a the research part of it was obviously much larger than i would have done for a magazine piece um and i'm a slow learner so learning to do this to do to do this well in a different genre, there's a whole there's different dynamics at play, and learning those and how to, you know, maximize those, uh, you know, it's 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 not it hasn't been easy, and it, it, I'm not looking for it to be easy. So it's um, a lot of writing and rewriting <laughs> is involved. How does but I'm the, there's no there's no race. I mean, to me, it's like I I enjoy process so much. I found that it's you know that outcome. I'm not like hankering or hungering to like get this done. Just each day when I wake up, I I look greatly forward to the writing time, uh, and do everything else that I need to in my life to first so that I can just relish, you know, getting to the afternoon time when I, when it's time to write. So that's how it's been. I guess, I guess my last question is, is you're 68, I I think. Um, What did you imagine when you sort of started out down this path where you'd be at 68 versus where you are? 
I didn't even imagine anything. <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't think that way. I don't think of like, what's, what do I want to be by this point or that point or just, uh, just do what's in front of me or what pulls me and know that I have no idea where that's going to go and how facetious it would be of me to presume otherwise. Um, so don't even bother with that, any of those kind of stories. Do you, do you feel at this stage when you kind of look back at, at how the story has unfolded, how much of life has happened to you versus you've chosen? Uh, mm. I mean, now we're <laughs> starting to pull, unravel or trying to unravel a, a, the greatest knot of all, you know, around <laughs> free will. It's, these are all stories we tell ourselves. So we, we need to tell have our, the story of that we have choice and, and free will just to function. But in reality, I think a vast amount of it is totally out, out of our control and it isn't a choice. Um, where that line is, again, this is all... These are all just us creating something out of something that's just happening. Life is happening and <laughs> everything else is just, is manufactured. It's just, it could be all our creation. And once you kind of flatten it out like that and see the emptiness of that, I, I think it just, um, you can engage in this sense of it, but I think it's important to be also aware that it's, this is all just mine creating something out of nothing. Hmm. I guess last thing, I'm just curious biographically a little bit. What did your parents do? Um, yeah, my father was um, an assistant principal at the high school where all nine of us went huh. in charge of discipline. So he was a, he was a pretty firm, uh, firm father, um, very practical. Um, and my mom was, you know, raising nine kids that swallowed her life, as, as you can imagine. So uh, that's, that's what my, my two parents did. Interesting. Principal. Corporal Assistant principal. Assistant principal. Corporal punishment in those days? Uh, you know, I, you know in, the, in the household or in the, in the, in the school? <laughs> I guess both. I guess they're both. Um, you know, I, I don't know, but I don't think in the school. At home, there was a, a time, there was a few times when... Uh, his uh, anger got the best of him and he gave a crack, but you know, it wasn't regular by any means, but there were, there were a few moments. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, he was, he was strict, however, for sure. Kind of have to be with nine balls of chaos bouncing off each other. Did, did any of your siblings go, go on to lead a creative life mm -hmm. like, like yours in any respect? Um, you know, my, it's create a family, not in a, you know, way that's real public, I'd say, um, you know, brothers and sisters who got involved in craft making and things like that. Um, um, my brother is a graphic artist, uh, brother who's, you know, very adept at communications and helping companies with their communications. Um, but no, not, you know, not in a way that would, public awareness you know would be connected with it so much hmm interesting yeah i i find where siblings go just so intriguing like the different tributaries that they make 
Um, yeah, it's hard to figure. Yeah, <laughs> I have a warden and a yoga teacher in my family. So. A warden? A prison warden? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, and a yoga teacher. That is great combo. Is it? Is there a mixture of you and you of both, or maybe or not really? <laughs> I don't. I think I'm a mixture. I mean, I have a, a mother who is a. Uh, you know, literally as a crystal ball doing spiritual channeling and fortune telling and then a lawyer for a dad. And I think, yeah, that's probably a mix of those two oddities, but that's wild. There's <laughs> three of you? Yeah, I have I have two half brothers and we all have different dads, so uh and they're quite a bit older than I am, so I have that weird feeling of I have big brothers, but I grew up as an only child. Yeah. That makes that, sense. Yeah, yeah. Do, do you do yoga or no? You know, I know I should do yoga, and I've tried it a few times. Uh, but I, I, uh, especially now that I have pretty chronic insomnia, I really want to get into meditation. And a lot of the, a lot of people that I really admire, it's been so transformative for them. And yet, I don't know what my apprehension is about kind of embracing the silence a little bit. But I, but I want to. I just am not quite there yet. Yeah, yeah. What would you recommend to to because I know meditation is a big part of your life and yoga also. I understand it has been. Yeah, um, uh, you know, just a, a to me at some point in the in the journey of a curious person, curiosity about the, the filter for it all, which is the mind, uh, is kind of an, at some point a necessary place to turn the lens to, like the the mind through which you're seeing all this and experiencing all this. It's kind of like the very starting point of it all once you, and a lot of, I think most often you don't realize that until you've gone out and explored all the things that you're seeing on the other side of that lens until you realize, wait a minute, the lens itself, hmm. it's critical. It's everything virtually. Um, so then, you know, turning the lamplight on the lens itself, the mind through which, which is generating these, all this experience. Um, and so it seemed almost necessary at some point in the, in the trip of life. And so, uh, just, yeah, it, it's been transformative. Um, and it's, um, as far as what to suggest, I mean, just even doing it for two minutes or whatever, just where you just, and, and, and start and start watching what voices come up and then just start it. To me, it was helpful just to uh, start seeing them as energies not as something that's me necessarily. There's just an energy of, you know, whether it's the critical voice or I should be doing this voice. Uh, I'm not doing this good enough voice. And then just start to realize, wait a minute, those voices, those energies are at play all the time. And where are they detracting? Where are they skillful? Where are they not skillful in my life? Hmm. Uh, you can learn a lot because it's like instant slow motion or freeze camera action in a football game where you can just like freeze frame something and see it happening. And instead of just being lost in the game as we mostly are, now you're having a chance to like see it in slow motion or freeze frame happening. And then you can start to connect some dots of what, how that can play out in your life and in your relationships. So we almost need this freeze frame camera that meditation offers us you know, that window into the mind. So just even doing it for a couple minutes and just watching and being aware of the display of mind, basically. But eventually, you know, I think to really gain the gold, a lot of the gold from it 
you would be going on a retreat, you know, and mm. doing it for you get some real momentum built up and you're accumulating some hours and then you start to see some more deeper psychic material come up and uh, it, it's very interesting and it can help free it up. And when it's freed, it can maybe stop limiting you in ways. Um, and so it's uh, it's quite interesting. And just how the brain, I think, when it gets, it starts to operate on a different frequency in deep meditation when there's a lot of hours accumulated. And when it's operating on that, there's different frequencies. Um, you can start to see in distant things that, in a way that that maybe you, you can't when you're just working on the frequency that we're working on in everyday life. And, um, and some of those insights that can come up can really affect how you go forward then in your regular life. That's, that's been my experience. Yeah. You're, you're making me just think it's so interesting that the, one of the worst punishments we can inflict on an individual is to put them in solitary confinement alone with their thoughts. Yeah. And yet it is something I really do want to explore. I mean, I feel, I don't know if this was the case for you as you approached an acceptance of embracing meditation, but I find that you, I would sort of find myself thrust into it just accidentally at times where it's like you shut out all of the noise it's a bit like that feeling when you catch your reflection on a surface in an urban environment, you don't know that it's you. And yeah. you're, you're thinking, wow, why is it not me? Because I'm not posing for it. It's just me as I am. Right. <laughs> yes. And then that, that amness that you're referencing there, it starts, you start to recognize that in everything. And when I think you really start to understand that isness or suchness of whatever it is the plant the banana tree they're right outside here the the wife in the other room you know the, that's when it just you start dropping a lot of the other stuff that's all barnacle to it and it's just a f way freer way to live yeah i mean i just started doing therapy and it's interesting i i was recognizing we just before the pandemic happened, I met my wife and we moved in together on like date number three. And we started every evening going for a long walk and encountering all these stray cats. And I just found it very, uh, a kind of recognition of how I feel in the world is quite similar to them. That there's a fear that I won't have a roof over my head or, or end up homeless. Like what separates me from a homeless person? I think that's why there's so much animus that people feel towards the homeless is they are us stripped down of a lot of our edifice and status and all of that and privilege. Yeah. Um, and as I was looking at these stray animals, I was just thinking Hemingway had this observation. If you shoot a bird out of the sky, you've shot all birds out of the sky. We all die. It's pretty monotonous. But when you love things, the manifestation of that love in Mr. Rogers language being loved into being, um, it's always unique in every case. Each one is, is, is that's it. That's the suchness of each, of all of this. Uh, so the more you can quiet the mind, the more you can receive that isness, amness, suchness. Yeah. And, and I don't know, it was just pretty 
it was a, I would go there myself very often in the afternoons just to see these little creatures that have no protection, no, no guarantee, like there's no shelter from the winter or a flood or a, a storm. And it was really um, conflicting for me just to imagine that cats are such a beautiful animal. How could they not have somebody loving them and protecting them and all of that? And, and, uh, and just realizing how are we different? We're different through a bunch of illusions, really. Absolutely, that's what. It, that's again going back to what I've been talking about. Though. Yeah, how much of this is mind created? But that those cats are just being. Yeah, we all have that capacity. We come from mammals, the mammalian. <laughs> the brain, you know, all, all of this is made up of mostly what we've inherited from animals, and so we that have a natural capacity, our brain to rest and just be the way that they do. It's a real shame if we don't ever tap into that and access it because it's a way less troublesome life. Hmm. And yet, you know, and some people have this fear, oh, I'm going to lose these, all these other, you know, the, the chip on the shoulder or the things we were talking about earlier that become them used as psychic fuel for motivation. But you can s still, I can assure you, have great love for doing things and getting involved in things and engaging with life without you know that manufactured psychic fuel or those things that we kind of rely on that we think drive us to get up and do what we need to do each day that can still all be there with that that freer freer being kind of mind do you absolute last question do you you strike me as somebody who got to the pinnacle of what you do, and I don't have any sense that competitiveness drove you. Am I wrong in that feeling? Like, I don't feel that that is what's watering your being with, with what was motivating you and what you were seeking. And every, even many sports journalists I've admired or writers that I've met, competitiveness and drive is almost always there and there's a kind of feeling of inadequacy. I remember Mike Tyson told me, no, nobody content is, is driven because why are they driven if they're content? And I don't know if I agree with that, but I thought it was an interesting observation that he was sort of saying that this arena of ambition on the elite level is all people who feel completely worthless. <laughs> uh, I think we've convinced ourselves that discontent is what drives, is what our fuel is. Um, and, and it definitely can be. And if you don't have any other fuel around, that's the one you got to grab and you're going to grab it and think that's the only fuel there is. Huh. But uh, I've, I've found that you can want to maximize creative possibility and opportunity without that part of it being involved at all. Um, I did, you know, I, even when I was a teenager, you know, I was I wasn't reading sports magazines or you know and like comparing myself or wanting to get to those rungs you know in the ladder or whatever I just never thought that way I was just you know reading great literature or whatever um, so I you know I've never read a lot of journalism or done a lot of comparing I mean I, obviously I've bumped into pieces that are hellaciously good and, and admired them but. Um, I just never thought in that way of just the whole comparison thing. Um, and, and really, you know, I just think we think that discontent is what we need to, to 
drive us forward and and we we don't that's not necessary at all i understand when it's your whole you're in survival mode as so many humans are how compelling and, and motivating that can be and is so i don't downplay that i know I, I know that it's been massively huge it's just because we don't know a, another way of being that we we think there's going to be a passive you know that it's going to make you disengaged or non-attached in a way that you wouldn't even have the appetite to engage with life and i i've not found that to be true at all hmm. just to you know engage for the sheer joy of the creativity of it all and the possibility of it all um it can be plenty enough but it is it is interesting with a lot of your work that i feel the sense of precision and it provides a kind of ecstatic revelation very very frequently with these people that you're interacting with what you're bringing to it what you're getting from it um but i find with a lot of other works that are striving like like perfectionism to me always has a certain stench when i encounter it in any kind of human endeavor and and it's not to say that it doesn't have value but there's a there's something a little sickening about it too like it's somebody afraid of dying or or afraid of the implications of not being spoken of or forgotten or whatever that um your stuff doesn't as i say it feels to me like it's it's elemental it's 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 breeze through the trees as opposed to a guy shouting at you you know trying to get get your attention it's i i um there's a, there's a little bit of an otherworldly quality to it from you I mean you mentioned Steinbeck I remember I was first introduced to Steinbeck by somebody I'd met just playing chess at random and he said what I love about Steinbeck is he is the sunshine in his world you feel him glowing on the skin of every character who's in his story because he loves them so much and I had to get it to a pretty sad place to think I need some of that I need to <laughs> I need to be in a world where the person loves all his characters that much and to spend time in that sun sunshine and it worked like I I always come back to it. Wow, that's really really interesting. Um Yeah, I mean I I don't know how to respond to what you just said. I mean it's um but uh Yeah. <laughs> I don't well, you know I, that I don't know if that's what I'm doing or not, but um to me if you're going there to understand and that's your your motive it changes probably you know that affects everything that happens thereafter um but i was also very detailed and you know and like you you know there isn't a meticulousness involved in a doggedness in getting the detail that will render a human being authentic or more whole um so you know i understood i think inherently that to capture that complexity and to be okay with complexity and not and in fact ambiguity is where the gold is right um that that would entail um a doggedness about detail um and then sometimes just you know imagining yourself into a character situations i found could be really helpful like just putting yourself in someone's shoes like what would i what would i what would i do what would i think what i act that would spawn a lot of questions you could ask a person that were you know took you into universal territory that all of us could relate to 
Um, so, you know, that was all going on. And then as time went on and understanding that um, you could move the lens a little bit in a room and that would change everything that you work where a director sets up their camera vastly affects what's going to the story that's going to unfold <clears throat> and then there may be a better story about moving the camera over here and seeing it through this person's eyes or that person's eyes so all that <clears throat> what's that know, term that's um, umwelt isn't that the right term umwelt sounds good to me Tell me a little bit more about it. Well, just, <laughs> no, what you're, just what you're describing, keyholes into reality, that every organism has a different perspective. Right. And it's all that's all it is, is perspective. Every last bit of this is perspective. There's no objective truth or reality of what anything is. So it's just everything is comes into being through the uh, engagement of, two, of a perceptor and a, of an object and a, and a perceiver. And so understanding that, uh, you know, is, is helpful too, I think. And anyway, we're, we're circling back now no, to the no. meditation field. It's, it, no, 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 it's fine. I, I'm fine with it all. I'm just, um, I'm just noticing as we're talking about this, how that just circles back into a lot of the understanding that comes from the, from the meditation journey. Well, it's, it's also interesting for me. I, I don't think we've spoken since. The last time I reached out to you was I was heading out for a week to spend time in Pensacola, Florida with Roy Jones. And no piece had any gotten anywhere near to what yours did, I think, 20 years before. I think it was 94, 95. Um, I remember seeing it as a kid because it was the first time I'd sort of heard his voice on the page and all those wonderful photographs of him with fighting cocks and stuff like that. And... Uh, I reread your piece several times and then interviewed you about some pointers about him and his dad and, and stuff like that. And it was such an odd experience to retrace some of your steps in the decay phase of, mm. of that life. Uh, the ecosystem in every respect was, it was like Tony Soprano saying, like, you want to be at the ground floor and I don't feel like I'm even at the middle. I think I'm coming in at the end. Wow. And as much as he's saying that, you know, he's also talking about America's in the same position. Yeah. <laughs> Decline, rot, malaise. And yeah. there was that feeling of this guy is on a ledge and he is not going to let go of this ledge and he's probably going to jump. And and I was just I kept thinking about what you had seen entering those gates of that property and meeting these people and who they were and who they thought they would be 20 years later and here they are and it was just a very weird way to interact with your work to follow up on it in a way yeah it's, it's, i mean is his his mind basically you found still working the way it seemed to be working when i was uh yeah I, I i loved him i i loved him i and i fucking hated him as a boxer i detested his personality as he presented it to the world, I couldn't stand him, and I promised myself, when this asshole gets knocked out, from from the, the the way that he treats his opponents with such disrespect and contempt, I will not feel sorry for him. I am mm -hmm. not gonna. And as soon as he was knocked out, I felt terrible for him. 
Uh. <laughs> and, and it was far worse meeting his wife and kids. I mean, his, his son was holding my hand, giving me a tour of the property, eight-year-old kid. And I um. thought, I don't think I can... I don't know that I can watch boxing ever again in the same way because when these guys finally lose and they almost all do, it's the wife and family that has to pick up the pieces and they don't know who the person is anymore that that person could, that they knew could never come back after they get knocked into oblivion and, and they have to deal with, you know, almost inevitable CTE and all of that kind of thing. Uh, it, it, it was it was very challenging, and I adored him. Uh, uh, he introduced me to his dad, and I just thought, Jesus, uh, I don't know who could survive a man like that. Big, yeah. big, big Roy. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, he was a he was a. I think he had two teeth in his head, and drove me around in a, a gothically. It was like Miss Havisham's. Um, Rolls Royce. It was so decayed, just like his teeth, and uh, whip smart, and not a shred of compassion for his son. Nothing. If anything, contempt. Contempt. Yeah, you know, Abraham Lincoln has schools named after him. Roy's not going to have school. Roy is not Abe Lincoln. I okay, that's the benchmark. <laughs> Thanks. Wow, wow, wow. Yeah. Thank you so much for today, Gary. This was very unexpectedly um, a lot of fun and, and really interesting. I didn't—I had no idea where it would go, so I really appreciate your time. Well, I really appreciate your questions, and it was—I really enjoyed the conversation. So, thank you, Brendan. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Tourist Information. The producers are George Alarcon Swaby and myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler. Please subscribe or rate the podcast. It helps us to keep bringing them out. Thanks again for listening.